And so, so last week, I, I challenged you to, to kind of up your game on understanding the biblical narrative. And I, and I put this chart up there uh, and, and, and talked through it a little bit kind of with, with dates um, and, and noted that there are 11 books that if you read those 11 books, you, um, you'll get the storyline of the Bible. All the other books fit back into it if you read those 11 books. Um, and, and I put some dates in that. T- today I want to do it actually with people, because I, I think it's good for us to understand how all this fits back together. And, and one of the things I, I think it's important for us to understand, I, I, I don't obsess about the age of the earth or any of those kind of things. God created, there's enough design to say there's a creator, and he created you, and you're responsible to him. And you fall short of his glory, you need Jesus. That's all the pieces we need, Okay. So I'm not going to argue about the age of the earth, but I am going to tell you this. There was a historical Adam. There was a guy named Adam. He was the first person um, who bore the image of God. And the biblical narrative would tell us that that happened uh, somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago. Um, and, and he was the first image bearer, and he was the only one until God created someone to be alongside of him, Eve. Um, and, and all of that took place between six and 10,000 years ago. He's, he's the first person. Um, because of his sin, um, they were removed out of the Garden of Eden. They began to have children, Cain and Abel, and, and, and they populated a, a large part of the earth. But as they were growing in population, they were growing in wickedness uh, until we get to the point where God looks down on the earth and he says, every intention of all of mankind is only evil all the time. I mean, that's a pretty significant um, overarching evaluation. Everything they think, everything that comes to their mind is only evil all the time. And God said, I'm starting over. And during the time of, of Noah, he, he kind of cleansed the earth to start all over. Um, it, it didn't redeem them, but it gave them another chance. And the same commands that God gives Adam, he gives Noah when he comes out of the ark. But it doesn't redeem them because it gets bad again, and, and it's not very long until they're, they're, they're multiplying, but they're not doing what God wants them to do, spreading out on the, all the earth. And they go to this tower, and they build this tower, and God says, I'm not going to let you build this monument to yourself. I'm going to make you obey me. And he sends languages, and those languages separate them, and, and eventually out of that, nations are developed. Um, and, and then God in the midst of these nations developing, says, I'm going to take one man and make him into a nation, um, and, and it's through that nation I'm going to work. And so he chooses Abraham. So you've got Adam, and then you've got Noah, uh, the flood. Um, nations are, are, are growing, and, and God chooses Abraham. And as we will see in the passage today, Abraham is one of those patriarchs, the, the fathers of faith. And, and it's important for us to understand who Abraham is in his life in Genesis 12 through 24, because Abraham is the person that, that Paul appeals to in Romans 4 when he's teaching justification by faith. He says, this has always been the case. Look at Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by his faith. And so you need to understand who this Abraham guy was. And, and Abraham um, has two sons, but it's only the one we see in the passage today. It's only through Isaac that the channel of blessing is going to come, not, not his other son, Ishmael. Um, and, and Isaac, who's another one of the, the patriarchs, Isaac 
is going to have two sons as well, Jacob and Esau. And it's only one of them, Jacob, through whom the blessings are going to come. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they, they grow, and they're growing a little bit. Um, and, and then they end up, because of some famines, down in Egypt, and they're in Egypt for 400 years where they grow to be 2 million people. Um, and after the 400 years in Egypt... That's when Moses arrives on the scene, and Moses leads them out of Egypt back to the promised land. Joshua helps them conquer the land. And then there's a period of about 400 years where they uh, live under the judges. And we're going to talk about that period in the fall. We're going to work through the book of Judges. But it's about 400 years where regional leaders around the nation, no one for the entire area, but regionally these um, deliverers come up, I'm getting too far into the fall, but you think of them more like warlords. Um, they they, they kind of conquer and push down the enemies, and then they rule for a little while. Um, and that, that period, jumping around all over, lasts about 400 years until finally um, they need a king. Um, and, and the people, first of all, get their own choice for king. That's Saul. He's not a very good king. Reigns uh, for about 20 years. Um, and then um, they get God's choice, David. <laughs> And, and David's not perfect, but he was God's choice. And, and the nation grows and, and expands its border under David. And then David passes it on to his son, Solomon. Solomon has a real divided heart. And so Solomon actually ends up leaving a divided kingdom, um, a kingdom that is, that is broken up now to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there's a lot of kings in the north and a lot of kings in the south. Um, the nation in the north... Um, never really worships God. The nation in the south has a lot of rebellion, but a few revivals through that period. And it's about 400 years long as well, until finally God just says, you guys in the north, 722 BC, they are scattered by the Assyrian army. They're judged. A little bit later in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, um, they are taken into captivity by the Babylonians for about 70 years. After that 70 years, they return Three guys, Ezra, a guy named Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. Ezra uh, builds a temple. Zerubbabel brings a bunch of people back, and Nehemiah builds the wall over a period of about 50 years. Um, Haggai, Machariah, Zechariah, Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi prophesy during that time. And then there's about 400 years of silence until we get to Christ. Those are, that's the flow of the Old Testament. You kinda, you've got Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob um, and then the 12 tribes, some judges, um, a united kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. Then it divides into the north and the south for about 400 years. And then it, the Old Testament comes to an end, and, and then Christ is introduced. That's the flow um, of what we're looking at here. And all of that becomes important because what Paul is doing in the section we're looking at is he's saying, has God been faithful to do all of this stuff he told us in the, in the Old Testament? Um, Paul has made all of these great promises as he's presented the gospel, that, that God will justify you. You'll have a right standing with him. You'll have imputed righteousness from Christ. You'll have peace with God. Um, you will have the Holy Spirit to help you grow. You're ultimately going to be glorified. Here's all these great things. And the question is, well, can you trust God? Was he faithful in the Old Testament? And that, that's the question he's answering in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is, can you trust God? And, and as we are looking at chapter 9, the, the focus of, of this chapter is 
is God's predestination, His sovereign work in the Old Testament, controlling everything for His purposes. Um, and God's freedom to do that and His purposes in doing that. Now, next week, God willing, we'll get there, uh, to chapter 10, we're going to see not the clear teaching on predestination, but some clear teaching on our responsibility in that. Because even though God is sovereign and in control, we are responsible to make right choices. And, and I don't think we can always put that together um, to solve all of the issues. Uh, John Stott, I quoted last week, says this, Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. So I'm not going to tie up all the loose ends for us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what Romans 9 says and say that's true. Then we're going to look at Romans 10 and say that's true, and God has it figured out even if we can't. But it is true what we're going to look at here in Romans chapter 9, and that is God is sovereignly in charge, and He sovereignly makes His choices based on His purpose, His will, to make His name great and bring glory to Himself. That's what Romans 9 is telling us. And God has been faithful to do that. So you can count on God to be faithful to do what He says He's going to do. Now, these are complex topics, I understand that, and so... Um, Last week, all of the resources were taken from here at the Connection Center, so I put them all out there again. They're online as well. And there's a, a real clear presentation by Chuck Swindoll on this idea of, presenta- uh, of predestination. It's clear and simple. Uh, there's another article by Frank Thielman on how God works with the nation of Israel. And, and then the longer one by Frank Thielman, it's still on two pages, but the fonts are really small, <laughs> uh, is really thorough in presenting this idea of God's sovereign choice and human responsibility and, and puts them together in a much more thorough way. Um, so I want to encourage you, take advantage of those resources. There's also that chart of the Old Testament um, out there if you want to use that to kind of guide you understanding the overall biblical narrative. Um, which, let me remind you, if you're reading through the Bible, it's not so you can say you read through the Bible. You should read through the Bible so you get this story that that you're a, a part of, that God graciously, amazingly <laughs> invites us to be a part of and invite other people into that. So I encourage you to take advantage of these resources. Um, I mentioned that Paul is, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's, he's answering this question, can you trust God to do all that he promises in 1 through 8? Um, and so he's presenting that with how God has dealt with Israel in the past, what we're looking at today, in the present, what we'll look at in chapter 10, and in the future is uh, what we look at in chapter 11. At, at the beginning of each one of those, Paul expresses his heart that the Israelites would be saved, and they're not. He's at a time um, where, where the growing population of the church is mostly Gentile, and, and so it's, it's kind of tragic, and it really raises the question. God's been working with Jewish people through this whole long Old Testament narrative, but now not many of them are accepting Christ, fewer and fewer, and more Gentiles are there. Has God been faithful in, in solving and answering the question? What Paul starts off with at the beginning of every single chapter is his heart um, for those who are lost, and, and he's going to He's going to say his heart breaks over the Jewish people. Listen to the the anguish in his heart. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. His heart is breaking that so few Israelites are recognizing that you as the channel for the Messiah are now not accepting him once he's here. And then he's going to go on to say, and, and you've been given so many benefits that you should have recognized it. It's, it's amazing to him that they hadn't. He, he says this, theirs is the adoption to sonship. They were the ones who were said, out of all these nations, you're going to be the family of God. There's the divine glory, Shekinah dwelling there. Theirs is the covenants. By the way, if you read the Old Testament narrative, uh, what you see is that there are a number of covenants that God makes. Uh, one with Noah, one with Abraham. He makes a Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and a new covenant. That's the plan of God in these covenants. Um, they receive the law, which shows them who God is and what he's like and, and how to relate to him. The temple worship and the promises. All of this is in this Old Testament narrative. They, they were the channel through the patriarchs, all of these people I just talked about, and through them you trace the ancestry of Messiah who's God over all. Gosh, you had all of these benefits. The, you, the family of God, the presence of God was there. You were revealed the plan of God and the revelation of God and the law. The house of God was in your land. All these promises were made, and it's through your family that the Son of God came. And, and he's going, it breaks my heart that after all of that preparation and storyline, that now that Christ is here, they are rejecting him. But because they're rejecting him, the question becomes, well, how, how does that fit with God's heart? Um, and, and so that's what we're going to look at here is the heart of God. And, and, and Paul's going to give five different proofs to demonstrate that God's sovereign election is based solely on his will and his purpose and for his glory. And it's not on our performance or on our intentions. Now, Next week, you're going to see, but we're still responsible and we still have the opportunity. Everybody has the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But, but the, the working out of that plan is based on God's sovereign election. He's in control. He, he makes the choices as to who's in and who's out and how they're going to be used. And he does that based on his will alone, not our performance. And he does it to bring himself glory. He is going to give five proofs of how you see that so clearly. His first one is going to be with Abraham. And he's going to say, listen, this doesn't depend on, on your ancestry, your family of origin. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are the descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I'll come back, and Sarah will have a son. Abraham had two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And just being born to Abraham didn't make you a recipient of the promise. It was God's choice to use Isaac. The, the son of Sarah. A Abraham was the father, um, two sons, but one born through Hagar, a handmaiden, and one through Sarah. And after Ishmael was born first, God said, no, it's not going to be the one who uh, was born through Hagar. It's going to be the one who's born through Sarah. And, and, and his point there is that your, your family tree doesn't determine your salvation. 
Um, just because you're born to Abraham doesn't mean you're part of the, the children of promise. Just because you grow up in a Christian family, just because you go to church, just because you may feel like, well, you know, we're in kind of a Christian nation. That's very difficult to say these days anymore, but, but maybe more than other places in the world. Just because you have the right people around you doesn't mean you're in. You have to respond in faith and, and respond to the promises. And it's faith in the promise of God that makes you someone who's a part of God's family. Salvation's always by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, it's the promise of the coming Messiah. For the New Testament, it's the coming of the Messiah who's already come. It's always by grace through faith as a part of God's sovereign plan. But we respond, and that's what gets us in. Not just being in church or in a certain family. That doesn't get you in. Now, someone may say, yeah, but that's Abraham, but he had two different wives. Well, he's going to give an even better illustration here because... um, Isaac is going to have um, one wife who not only is a single wife, but she has twins. Here's the story. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. This is so important to hear. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I talked last week about how that love and hate is the covenant terms to say, I've chosen Jacob and I've rejected Esau to be part of the recipients of the the covenant. It's not a disdain. It's a choosing and a rejection. But God's choice in this illustration, same father, same mother, twins, Before they're born, before they do anything, God says this is how it's going to work out because it's his sovereign choice and election that is determining how things are going to happen. Now, again, we're going to get to chapter 10 where where it says everybody has the opportunity, everybody has the responsibility. But if you put the Abraham and the Isaac illustrations together, uh, John Harvey says this, the example of Isaac and Jacob demonstrate that God's promises applies to those God sovereignly calls. God's promise is selective, and it does not apply to every individual who traces his or her ancestry to Abraham. God is sovereign, and he chooses, but he does not choose on the basis of your ancestry, of, of the family that you're in, the group that you're a part of. God chooses, and that choice is based on those that God chooses for his purpose. I was going to give another illustration to say God's sovereignly in control of this whole thing. He's going to go back, still in the Old Testament, to Moses and Pharaoh. He says this, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. He's not unjust. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is, God is making these choices, but you see the emphasis is the choice to have mercy and to have compassion. Although, he's going to highlight, but Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God's making these choices, and he's using it. Now, I, I, he, there's a working together in this, because when you read the Old Testament narrative in Exodus, 
God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardens his own heart as well. It, it ultimately is God's sovereign choice, but he's not coercing anyone to do anything they're not wanting to do. Um, it's not as if Pharaoh's going, no, let me follow you. Let me believe. No, hey, Pharaoh doesn't want to do that. And, and God hardens his heart and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And they, they, they work together. But the big point he's making here is God has mercy on whoever he, he chooses to have mercy. And, and so um, God's not unjust. And he's making these choices, do you see right there in the middle of it, to display his power and that his, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's doing all of this so you know he's in charge and so that his name goes around the earth. He's got a purpose for all this, and it's a good purpose. We don't always see the purposes behind it. But God is using his compassion, his mercy, and even those who he hardens, he's using that to accomplish his purpose. John Harvey, again, summarizes this one. God's statement to Moses and Pharaoh demonstrate that God exercises his mercy justly in accordance with his character and in order to make himself known. Again, this is one of those reasons that the response to these messages is just to humbly submit. You don't have to understand it, and, and you don't control it. God controls it, and you kind of have to humbly submit and say, yeah, God has compassion on whom he has compassion, and he hardens who he hardens. But remember, as he says all of this, the other thing that the Bible reveals to us is that this God who is sovereignly in control is gracious and loving and wise. And so you're submitting to someone who's totally in control. He's sovereign, but he's loving. He's gracious. He's wise. He's so loving that he sends his son to solve the problem for us. God is just, and he's just because he's acting for his glory. That rubs us the wrong way sometimes because we want it to be about us, but it's about his glory. And God is free to use his creatures as he chooses. And when you, when you look back at it, if you're going, yeah, but that doesn't seem just. God should be fair, equally fair. Um, equally fair means none of us make it. John Stott says, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. I think that's accurate. If we're, if we're calling for God to be just, then, then none of us make it. So, so we need to call and, and receive the grace of God, which all of us can receive. Romans 10 is going to make clear. God's sovereign choice doesn't remove our responsibility. Romans 10 will say that. And God's choice doesn't um, remove our opportunity. Romans 10 will say that. God is sovereignly in control, but we have responsibility and opportunity to respond. God has given everyone the opportunity, Romans 1 says, to respond to him because he gave creation that everybody can see, and creation declares his, his majesty and his glory. You should be able to look at creation and say, there's a God. And if you respond to that, wow, there's a God up there, he, and say, I want to know more, he's going to get the message to you through a dream, a vision, through a missionary um, if you respond, God's going to get you the next piece of information you need, if you want it. Um, so there's opportunity out there all over the place, and there's responsibility. And how that fits together, um, we can't always remove all of the, the confusions, um, but they are compatible. This I talked about this last week. Compatibilism is the theory that human free will is consistent, it's compatible with God's sovereign prerogative to determine or will all things that are to happen. 
But make note of this. In order for this to be true, compatibilists usually argue that human freedom is only analogous to God's freedom and not identical with it. More specifically, human freedom is limited, whereas God's freedom is absolute. We are free, but we're not free like God is free. And, and by the way, this isn't the only category that this fits. We can be gracious, but we're not gracious like God is gracious. God is ultimately gracious. We can have moments of graciousness, but, but we're not fully gracious. We can be wise. Sometimes people are wise, but we're not fully wise like God. So this isn't the only category in which we have an attribute, but it's not exactly the same. God is completely free. And he is completely wise, gracious, loving, and powerful. And he makes all of these choices to advance his plan. This leads him to another discussion from the Old Testament. One of you will say, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? But, but who are you, O human being, to talk back to God? And then he goes to an illustration from Isaiah. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. He, he, he goes to an illustration from Isaiah to say, God's like a potter, and, and he, he's free to make out of all of the lumps of clay. And by the way, here's humility. We're lumps of clay. And God is the potter, wise, gracious, loving, sovereign, can make out of the lumps of clay those pieces of clay to do whatever he needs them to do, to bring him glory and advance his purpose. And some of them are used in special ways. Some of them um, have uniquenesses. I think this plays itself out in the gifts that uh, are given to people in in the New Testament, that everybody has unique gifting, uh, and and God uses them in some great ways, and some are used in other ways. Um, And he he uses this term, who who are you to talk back to God? And and it really is, it has the flavor of a kid who who talks back. um, when our boys were young, um, they would get timeouts for different things. Our rule was you're in timeout for as many minutes as you are years old. Okay? But sometimes we would say, your mouth is in timeout. You're, 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 your body's not in timeout. Your mouth is in timeout. You can't keep talking that way. <laughs> sometimes it was, we, we just, you can't keep talking. Uh, but, but we would put their mouth in time because they're talking back. We shouldn't talk back. It is that silliness of a child talking back to their parents who are sovereign and in control and wise and loving and gracious. And they're saying, I want my way. <laughs> well, you, that's what we are like because God is, is this potter and we shouldn't talk back to him. Uh, Frank Thielman says, God is like a potter working with clay and has the right, I highlighted it, and the skill to shape some, some, some sinful people so that in the end they receive his mercy and honor and shape other sinful people so that they eventually receive the dishonor they deserve for their rebellion against him. God is sovereign. He's like the potter. He can do whatever he wants. And he's skillful enough to shape out of all of the sinful people. We all start off sinful. Some of those sinful people he's going to shape to be used in one way, and some he's going to be shaped to use in another way. But again, this is not completely apart from anything that we do. Um, one of the ways I think this is pulled together well is by C.S. Lewis, who says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
There are two groups of people in the end. The final scene in heaven, um, at the great white throne, God walks up to all of humanity and he says, how many of you went my way and you trusted my provision in Jesus Christ? How many of you said to me, God, your will be done. I'll take it your way. And he says, all of you come over here. By the way, you're all, your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Come on over here. Um, all the rest, he says, you didn't go my way, so I'm going to let you have it your way. You go it on your own. Stand before the judge, and let's see how you measure up. And you know how many people passed the test? Zero. In the end, God says, there's two people. Those who said, God, your will be done, and you go into the joy of the Lord. And then God says, if you want it your way, you can have that, and you're separated from him for all eternity. And all of that, God understands, is a part of his plan, and it brings him glory. He's going to give some more illustrations, and he's going to talk about God's patience in working all of this out. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And, and the what if is a rhetorical question. God did um, choose to show his wrath and make his power known, but he was very patient in doing that. Let me, let me give you the patience of it. When, when God in this Old Testament narrative brought the people of Egypt out of, or the people of Israel out of Egypt, um, and before they went into the land under Joshua in the book of Deuteronomy, they renewed a covenant and said, we'll live faithful to you. God says, good, as long as you're faithful, I'll bless, bless you. If you're not faithful, I'm going to discipline you. You go into the land. They went into the land and they were not faithful and they were disciplined. They were sent into captivity for 70 years. 800 years later, God was 800 years patient with them. If you're thinking God is mean and cruel and hard-hearted, no, He's patient with His people. He gave the nation of Israel 800 years. I mean, you put it together, 400 years under the judges and 400 years with a divided kingdom. And then finally, he said, I've had it. You're, you're going to go into captivity. God is patient with his people because he wants to give them chance after chance after chance to turn around. That's why he created Adam and Eve, told them to do what they're supposed to do. They didn't do it. He kicks them out of the garden. They're supposed to do what they're supposed to do. They don't do it. He starts all over again, washes the world with a flood, starts over with Noah and says, this is what I need you to do. He keeps giving people chances because he's patient. And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. He did this to show his patience and to show his glory. That's why he's in charge and he's developing and sovereignly choosing all the things he's sovereignly choosing to ultimately show his grace and his wisdom and his glory to all of us. God's, God's very patient. He gives his people abundant times to choose his way. Um, and he does that with us, too. He gives us time, and he's patient with us, and he calls us again and again. God makes all of his choices to demonstrate his glory. So far, God's doing it based on his will, on his purpose, uh, to show his power, to advance his name, and to bring himself glory. He's going to give some more illustrations. He's going to go to Hosea, 
and Isaiah. You need to understand the Old Testament to see where all this comes from. Um, Hosea and Isaiah are prophets to the Old Testament countries um, of Israel and Judah. Hosea to the north, really rebellious, never really had any people who followed the Lord. Isaiah, um, still rebellious, but every now and then they had a, a revival. He's going to appeal to Hosea and Isaiah to say, look at what happens in the Old Testament. Um, as he says in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said, you're not my people, there will be some who are called the children of the living God. Here's the story. God sends Hosea the prophet to the northern kingdom. And what he says to the northern kingdom is, you're the people of Israel. You're God's people. But you know what? You're not faithful to him. You're not his people. (laughs) The people who are supposed to be his people are not his people. And so he says, you're going to go away into judgment, but there's going to be another generation that comes back that doesn't even exist, that aren't my people yet, but they're going to be my people. Um, and, and there are those people who are, are not his people now who are going to be part of the family of, of, of God. And for him, for Hosea, kind of the initial fulfillment of that was this captivity that sent some people away and a, a group that came back who were then faithful to God. But by application, Paul is saying, this is like now. The people who were God's people are not his people. And the people who weren't his people, the Gentiles, they're now his people. The summary of the Hosea quote, which, by the way, I recognize the summary of the quote is longer than the quote. I get it. The current situation with the Jews being rejected and the Gentiles being accepted is consistent with what God did in the past when God rejected a generation who were his people by ancestry but were not his people because of their rebellion and idolatry. God has also taken people who were not his people and made them his people when when they repented and trusted him. He's saying God's done this in the Old Testament before. So now what's going on with Jews and Gentiles? It's consistent with how God has related to people. Then he's going to go to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, now here in the southern kingdom, through the, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. There's a bunch of them who claim to be you know, God's people and God's family, but there's only a remnant, a small number who are going to be saved. This is, remnant idea is going to be big in chapter 10 as well. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. There are a lot of Israelites, but God is judging a bunch of them. And if it weren't for the grace of God, they'd all be wiped out. But there's a remnant. And Paul's saying, even in our time, a lot more Gentiles than Jews, but there are some Jews, and Paul's going to go like me, who have accepted the Messiah. Summary of the Isaiah quotes, God's word has not failed, and he can still be trusted because his word in Isaiah is consistent with what is happening now, namely that only a remnant of those who trace their ancestry to Abraham have true faith and are thus recipients of God's grace. It's all about God's grace. And, and, and our response, chapter 10, to God's grace. Um, he, he concludes this thing by by getting down to what I'm calling the heart of the matter. And that is, God's in control of all of this. And when it comes down to it, God's giving everyone access to get righteousness, to get a right standing before God. But it only comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. And the problem is, the Jews tried to get it by works. They tried to say, 
you gave us the law, we're going to try to observe the law. And it's like, no, it's not about the law, it's about Jesus Christ. And once Jesus Christ came, you're rejecting him. Here's what he says. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, haven't attained their goal. They tried to be righteous by observing the law, and and they didn't attain it, because you can't keep the law. But these Gentiles, who weren't part of this Old Testament plan we're talking about, now that the plan has generated the Messiah, the people who weren't a part of the plan, they're accepting the Messiah because they're accepting him by faith. He's going to continue and say this. Why not? Because they pursued... Why did Israel not get the righteousness? They pursued it not by faith, but as as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Here at the very end, what he's saying is, It's by faith, not by works, and it's faith in the stone. Psalm 118, the stone is the prophecy of Messiah. Jesus is the stone. The whole Old Testament narrative was to generate the stone who's going to redeem you and then going to come back and he's going to rule. There's a bunch of Daniel 2 images there as well. Um, This thing all fits together. (laughs) See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, the stone is a person, it's Jesus, will never be put to shame. It all comes down to this. The Jews are trying to get it by works. They're not going to get it. The Gentiles, in large measure, are trying to recognize we're not part of that whole plan. (laughs) But we see the stone, we see the Messiah, who's the promised outcome of it all, and we're going to receive that through faith. Now, I wish, I wish I had a way to wrap this all up in a way that removed all of the tension and the enigmas and the mysteries. I wish I had a, a nice sentence that I could create at the bottom summary of chapter 9. Um, I don't. <laughs> There's clear teaching in, on predestination in chapter 9. But I'm going to end this message the way Paul ends chapter 11, because I think that's the only thing you can do. At the end of chapter 11, he says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's how you can end this. God is sovereign. He makes the choices not based on us. He makes the choices before we're born, before we do anything good or bad. He makes the choices based on his purpose, his will, to demonstrate his power so that his name will be great and he will get glory. And we're just lumps of clay. With freedom to respond to the simple thing, he says, trust me and my provision in Jesus Christ rather than performing by the law. Oh my gosh, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How do, you, how do you respond to that? Let me, let me give you a couple of specific things. Number one, make a plan to become more familiar with the biblical narrative. Um, figure out how you're going to read the Bible. And maybe it's read those 11 books on the chart, and then read a gospel and Acts. If you get that, you get the story. Because as we went through the book of Acts, you, you saw how all the other books of Paul fit into that. So read the 11 books in the Old Testament, 
by the way, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Read those 11 books, a gospel, I don't care which one, and Acts. You'll get the whole biblical narrative. Maybe that's your plan. You're going you're gonna to read that. Um, go to downline. Um, get it in, in a much bigger way. Um, come to the course we're going to uh, teach in the fall that's probably going to be one day Saturday that we just take the whole time and I just say, here's the biblical narrative and put all the pieces together. Secondly, take seriously the purpose of God to bring glory to himself and prioritize your life to be a part of that plan. If everything is about bringing glory to God, bring glory to God by how you live for him. And finally, would you take a single step this week to make your life more God-focused than self-focused? I don't know what that single step for you would be, but a single step to just say, I'm going to not make it about me and make it about God. To him be the glory. Father, we thank you for your wisdom, your grace, your love, your power that guides your sovereign purposes and choices. May we cooperate with them, submit to them, and glory in them because it's because you're the one who's in control, we can count on what you've promised. And so, Father, um, let us find our refuge, our strength, our peace, our hope, our comfort in you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.